Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Wilkins, and I'm one of the uh, pastors here at Zion Presbyterian Church. If you're visiting with us, we are so thankful for your presence. And we pray and we hope that you would experience the warm welcome of the Lord and the warm welcome of the Lord's people. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We are picking up in our sermon series on 1 Corinthians. Um, One of the things that we like to do, we we actually hold this as as a value, is we like to preach through books of the Bible. One of the reasons we do that is because we have to think about things that we normally don't think about. This morning is a case in point. We're talking about the blessing of singleness. (laughs) The blessing of singleness. When Paul told me that he wanted me to preach on singleness this morning, I thought, dang, I'm not doing RUF anymore. I mean, I mean, I've been married for more than 30 years. Like, what do I have to say about singleness? And then I thought, the single folks out there are probably thinking, he's been married for more than 30 years. Sure, he's going to call singleness a blessing, and he's married. And then I actually thought about those of you who are married, and I thought, oh, cool, we get to check out. He's talking about singleness. We're married. So we can just sort of doze off and, and not pay attention. And I was reminded as I was preparing this week, actually from a number of places, but particularly from one pastor. I listened to a sermon that a guy gave on this passage. And he reminded me that no matter what your marital stat- status is at this moment, singleness either is was or will be for many of us our status someday. And so the Apostle Paul's words in this passage are applicable to all of us in this room today, whether you're married or you're single. So look with me now at 1 Corinthians 7. We're actually going to start in verse 25 and read to verse 40. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do, Mary, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she is not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. 
But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the married or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and is determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. There's my opinion, and there's your opinion, and then there's the word of God. And what we've heard read just now is the very word of God. We should ask him to teach us. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you that you have us think about things that we don't normally think about. Or at least some of us in this room don't normally think about. I suspect there are others who think about it a lot. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us. We need you. We need you. So we offer ourselves to you, and we would ask that you would allow us to behold you in your beauty that we might leave this room different than we arrived today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I probably don't need to tell you this, but we live in a culture that is obsessed with sex, with romance, with relationships. Uh, If you don't believe me, Just think about the movie genre rom-coms, romantic comedies. What is the typical story of your typical rom-com? How, well, what almost always happens at the end of a rom-com? The guy gets the girl, and they live happily ever after. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller writes, Western culture tempts us to put our hopes in apocalyptic romance, in finding complete spiritual and emotional fulfillment in the perfect mate. For what it's worth, that's what the Bible calls idolatry. He goes on. Innumerable Disney-style popular culture narratives begin telling Life stories only when two parties are about to find true love. And then once they do, the story fades out. The message is that what matters in life is finding romance in marriage. Now I'm going to date myself. 
but the thought that came to my mind was the single most famous line in the movie Jerry Maguire. Anybody know it? Tom Cruise, who plays Jerry Maguire, is talking to Renee Zellweger, who plays Dorothy. And what does he say? Come on, say it out loud. You complete me. You complete me. There it is. And here's the thing. I think if we're honest, we would have to say that we've drunk the Kool-Aid. We, believers, we, the church, we've bought the line. Hook, line, and sinker. When our single sons and daughters or grandsons and granddaughters come to town, what question are you always tempted to ask? Have you met anybody special? Are you seeing anybody? I've got three unmarried adult children, two daughters and a son. And one of the questions I am often tempted to ask when I talk with them or when they, when they give me a call or when they come over to the house is, um, are you dating anybody? <laughs> Honestly, there's a part of me that goes, yes, when they say no, <laughs> especially my girls. But there's another part of me, if I'm honest, that worries for them when they say no. I want them to meet the guy, a Christian guy, of course, get married, settle down, have kids, and live happily ever after. Now, I think my desires for my children is not a bad desire. It's not a wrong desire. Our questions to our returning college students, seminary students, or other single folks in the church, they're not necessarily bad. But if we aren't careful, they can have unintended consequences. What do I mean? Well, let me ask you a question. What message do you think I'm sending my daughters if every time I see them, I ask them, so, is there someone special in your life? What narrative have I bought when I worry that my daughters might never get married? What message am I sending my daughters when I'm constantly trying to be their matchmaker? Oh, there's this really cute guy at Zion I'd love for you to meet. If you're single... What message do you hear if all you ever hear is the question, is there anybody out there? You, yeah, who are you going out with? I'll tell you what they might be thinking. I'll tell you what you might be thinking. I'm missing out. Something is wrong. Something... I, I'm, I'm incomplete, obviously. I, I, 
somehow I'm, I'm living sort of God's plan B for my life. I'm, I'm a second-class person. I'm not who I should be. And if you're single, what question might you be tempted to ask yourself? What's wrong with me? According to one pastor, the most concerning thing about our obsession with the relationships of the single people we know or the, the relationships that you want yourself, or mostly, the, 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 I'm sorry, the most concerning thing about this obsession that we have is that we can actually push our singles to begin to question the goodness of God. Because our questions force them to ask a question. If God is really good, why am I still single? If God really loves me, why haven't I met Mr. or Mrs. Wright? The temptation is to conclude that God doesn't really have their best interests at heart. That God isn't really working all things for their good, including their dating status. My beloved single friends, if that's the message that you get from me, or from your parents, or from the church, I want to say, please forgive me. I'm wrong. And please forgive us. I'm so sorry. And I'm not sorry because you're single. I'm sorry because I have this over-concern with your dating status, and I fail to take seriously what the Bible has to say. And if your status as a single person leads you to wonder if God really loves you, really cares about you, really has your best interest in heart, then I would beg you to do two things. The first is this, look at Jesus Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that Jesus is the perfect image of God. In other words, Jesus is who we were created and redeemed to be. He is the picture of what it means to be fully human. And he was both single and celibate. And what that must mean is that you can be everything that God has created and redeemed you to be as a single and celibate person. Second, I want you to listen to what Paul has to say in this passage. Verse 38, He who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do what? Even Better. Which means that singleness is not God's plan B for your life. It's not even a neutral holding pattern status. Singleness is good 
Whereas Paul says at the beginning of chapter 7, singleness is a gift from God. Now to understand and apply what Paul is saying in this passage, you have to understand the world in which Paul lived. And the fact is, the world wasn't all that different from our world when it comes to the topic of singleness. Again, to quote Tim Keller, he points out that nearly all religions, all ancient religions and all ancient cultures made an absolute value of marriage, family, and having children. He writes, there was no honor without family honor, and there was no real lasting significance or legacy without living, leaving heirs, Without children, you essentially vanished. You had no future. And yet, what does Paul say in our passage? Again, verse 38. He, and and I think from the context, it's appropriate to add, and she, he and she who marries his or her betrothed does well. And he or she who refrains from marriage will do even better. Now, that might strike you as rather odd or out of step or maybe even contradictory with what you know of the Apostle Paul and his view of marriage, especially passages like Ephesians chapter 5 where he says that the marriage between a man and a woman is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. But the fact is Paul... But the fact is, Paul has a very high view of marriage. He knows his Bible, guys. He knows that in Genesis chapter 2, God said that it is not good that man should be alone. And so he creates Eve. And Paul repeatedly says in our passage, in a number of ways, if you really want to get married, get married. It's not a sin. So how are we supposed to make sense of what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 7? Because it almost sounds like Paul's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Well, in our passage, Paul lays out a couple of reasons why he can say marriage is great, but singleness is even better. Look Look at the end of verse 26. He writes, I think that in view of the present distress... It is good for a person to remain as he is. Paul is just continuing what he has been talking about in verses 17 to 24. And he's applying it to engaged couples and unattached singles. Paul continues in verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Which in this context means are you engaged to be married? The, the word that is translated wife is just the, it's the word that could also be translated woman. Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now, what is Paul talking about when he mentions this present distress? Well, no one actually knows. Some scholars believe that A famine had set in on Greece and the Corinthians were struggling to put food on the table. Others think that perhaps this was the beginning of Christian persecutions. Still others believe that what Paul Paul goes on to say 
about the return of the, 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 uh, the return of the Lord, that that was playing into his thinking. Others think that Paul was just reflecting on the fact that we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world, and it's just hard. The fact is that God obviously doesn't think you or I need to know because he doesn't tell us. But what is clear is that Paul wants us to know that along with, mar- with, it, with it being a blessing, marriage comes with complications and limitations. Look at the end of verse 28. Paul writes, yet those who marry will have worldly trouble, and I would spare you that. And what does Paul say in verse 32? He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. Friends, Paul, Paul's not a rocket scientist. This is just common sense, isn't it? He's telling us that when two people get married, life becomes more complicated. If you're married, you know this to be a fact. When two people get married, more than two people get married. What, what do you mean? When two people get married, they bring baggage to the table. When Kathy and I got married, uh, I brought my family of origin issues with me, and she brought her family of origin issues with her. One example. Uh, one Sunday afternoon when I was in seminary, Kathy and I went over to my parents' house to see them. I had recently been diagnosed with a benign, very slow-growing tumor in my middle ear. The doctors told me that if I was 60 years old, they wouldn't even take it out because I would be dead of old age long before it did anything to me. But I was in my late 20s, and it needed to come out. But I didn't want to miss the next semester. So I went over to my folks' house, and I told them I'd I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put off that surgery until December. It's June. My dad loses it. And we have this really heated, really passionate conversation. After the conversation ends, Kathy and I walk out the door. I don't give it a second thought. This is just how we operate in my house. Kathy, on the other hand, is devastated. She thinks that I've blown up our entire family. And, and, and that difference of communication styles, you guys you who are married sort of get this probably. That difference of communication styles found its way into our own relationship. And I sadly had to learn the hard way that I can't speak to Kathy the way that I speak to my father. And we ended up spending a number of counseling sessions working through those issues. And it was money well worth, uh, well worth being spent that way. It took time, it took effort, and, and frankly, a lot of tears were shed in the process. I think that's what Paul's talking about in verse 28. He says, I'd like to spare you that trouble if I can. Working through conflicts, the children's issues, where to live, how to and how not to spend our money. 
It's complicated. What do you do if you want to have children and you realize you can't? It's complicated. What do you do if your spouse loses his or her job? It's complicated. What do you do when one of your children is sick? Who's going to stay home? It's complicated. How do you decide where you're going to live? What kind of house you're going to buy? It's complicated. Whose job takes precedent? It's complicated. How much time will you spend with your extended families? It's complicated. It's all very complicated. Now, again, it's not that Paul is anti-marriage. He is pro-marriage, unquestionably so. It's just that marriage, as wonderful as it is, comes with complications, and Paul doesn't want anyone to be naive. Secondly, in addition to complications, marriage also brings limitations. Example, every married person in this room knows this. My time is not really my time. Whose time is my time? It's our time. As a husband and a father, I can't do what I want to do when I want to do it with whoever I want to do it with. And that's good and that's right. Because as a husband and a father, my first priority is the Lord. My second priority is my wife. And my third priority is my children. And then everything else falls in line after that. Of course, Paul's big concern here isn't that if a person gets married, he or she is going to lose that freedom to sort of use their time as they like, make it my time. He isn't concerned that marriage is going to put a cramp in your style. Look at what he says in verse 35. I say, to you, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Beloved, that is the heart of the reason why Paul says that remaining single is preferable to getting married. Undivided devotion to the Lord. This is perhaps the blessing of singleness. That as a single person, I have the freedom to give my full attention and my full effort to the things of the kingdom. I remember when... Kathy and I moved to Fort Worth in 1996. Our oldest, Micah, was one year old. And I became really good friends with this guy who was a youth pastor at another church in Fort Worth. And my friend was single. While I was spending time with my family, helping Kathy feed our kids and change diapers and put them down at night, he was spending time with his students. And he was pouring into his 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 student leaders, and he was spending time with people who didn't know Jesus. Not only was he a youth pastor, but he was, he was leading young life in Fort Worth, Texas at the time. He was mixing, rubbing shoulders with all kinds of believers and unbelievers. Now, I was doing exactly what I was called to do as a husband and a father. And he wasn't called to do what I was called to do as a husband and a father. He didn't wear the hats that I wore. 
With his singleness came a certain freedom to be devoted to the things of the Lord in in a way that I could not be devoted to those things. If I did, if I did what he did, I would have been sinning. Because I'm called to be a husband who loves his wife like Christ loves the church. And I'm called to shepherd my children's hearts, to raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that takes time. And and you can't do that if you're never home. To say yes to them, I had to say no to other opportunities. And again, that, that was good and right. But my single youth pastor friend was able to invest his time and his energies in the ministry in ways that I simply couldn't and shouldn't. I think that's what What Paul's talking about when he says, I want to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, let me me qualify this for a second. I don't want to give the impression that married people aren't as devoted to the Lord as single people. And I don't want to give you the impression that Paul thinks that singleness is plan A and marriage is plan B. That's certainly not what Paul is getting at here. But what I think Paul is trying to get us to do in a world that often overlooks and even neglects single people is to see the unique blessings that come with being single. And you might be single and still think, I get what you're saying, Jeff. I get what Paul is saying. But I still really hope that one day God blesses me with a husband. I I hope that God blesses me with a wife. And you know what Paul would say? He would say, well, then that's what I'm going to pray for. But I also think he would say this. If God doesn't ever give you a husband or a wife that you hope for, know this. In the words of Tim Keller, marriage was created to be a reflection of, on the human level of our ultimate love relationship and union with the Lord. It is a sign and a foretaste of the future kingdom of God. That's why Paul says in verse 29, the appointed time has grown very short. And in verse 31, for the present form of this world is passing away. A number of years ago, Paul Tripp wrote a book on parenting teens called Age of Opportunity. And in it, he says this, eschatology, a focus on eternity, is not the strong point of most teenagers' functional theology. And as I thought about that statement, I thought, I don't think that eschatology, focusing on eternity, is a strong point of my functional theology. I'm I'm 58 years old. I never think about eternity. Well, not never. But I'm consumed with the present. What about you? Beloved, our marriages in this life were never meant to be an end in and of themselves. They were never meant to provide us with ultimate meaning, satisfaction, safety, Security. The fact is they can't provide us with ultimate meaning, satisfaction, safety, and security 
Our marriages in this life are but a faint reflection of the one relationship for which every single believer is made, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Our marriages in this life point to and speak of the final relationship and the final reality for which all of us were ultimately made, a marriage between God and his people, a marriage between Jesus and his bride. That's what's going to last. That's the thing we were made for. That's the thing we were redeemed for. How is Jesus presented to us in the last chapters of the book of Revelation? He's presented to us as the bridegroom who comes for his bride. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Revelation 21, verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Beloved, marriage on earth is a picture. It's a picture that points us to the ultimate relationship and the ultimate reality for which every single one of us is created and redeemed. A union with Christ Jesus the Lord, the lover of our souls. That's why Jesus is described as the bridegroom. Christ is our bridegroom, is our destiny. Christ is our bridegroom, is our hope. Christ is our bridegroom, is our ultimate meaning. Christ is our bridegroom, is our significance. Christ is our bridegroom, is our satisfaction. Christ is our bridegroom, is our safety. Christ is our bridegroom, is our security. Nothing else. This is why Paul can say what he says in verses 29 and following. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Confusing verses, aren't they? Paul is not contradicting himself. He is not contradicting what he says in Ephesians 5 about husbands loving their wife like Christ loved the church. He's not contradicting what he says in Romans 12 about rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Do you know what Paul is saying? And he's saying it to every one of us in this room. Whether you're married or single, live your life today in light of eternity. Whether you're married or single today, live your life in light of the wedding supper of the Lamb. Whether you're married or single today, live your life in light of the new heavens and the new earth. Whether you're married or single today, live your life in light 
of the one who we see pictured at this table. This is the love of our lives. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. This, I'm going to call the elders up or the folks who are going to do communion in just a second, so don't be freaked out. This table reveals to us the devotion, the heart of the Lord Jesus for his bride. That he would leave heaven above, come to earth, walk around, poor, no place to lay his head, completely misunderstood. His friends don't get him and then they all bail out on him in the end. And yet, he died for them, for us. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. And that son loves us with the same love as the father. Live. What would your life look like tomorrow if you lived your life in light of the love of Jesus? What would your life look like tomorrow if you lived your life knowing that this world is not all there is? What would you live like? What would your life look like tomorrow if you lived knowing that you will be satisfied? That there is true ultimate meaning. That there is really safety and security, not in our earthly relationships, but in the relationship that we have with Jesus the unbreakable relationship that we have with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your death. Lord, I would ask that you would give us faith to believe the things that you say. That your love is incomprehensible. That your love will never let us go. That the day will come when we will see you face to face and we will finally be like you and we will sit down at the wedding supper of the Lamb with you at the table of honor. Lord, I pray that you would meet us this morning at your table. Lord, we believe. Help us overcome our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray, amen.